good morning, everyone. Glad you're all here this morning. Um, let's have a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll get started. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the bit of rain that we got. Uh, Lord, we would ask for more uh, as our state is uh, having a problem with lack of rain. Lord, we would ask that you would provide that for us. Father, we thank you for time to gather together this morning um, to look into church history and um, look at those who came before us, those Christians who you have used mightily to spread the gospel and further your kingdom. We give you praise for that, and we thank you for this opportunity to be here. You are good and faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, if you didn't grab the notes, they're, they're out there on the podium. And we've been looking at church history uh, for many weeks now. We've been focused uh, primarily on the people and movements uh, who have significantly affected uh, the church uh, throughout the centuries. And of course, we can't mention every event that has ever happened. Uh, we'd be here for years talking about everything. But we've seen how those people and movements have been used by God to uh, sustain his church <clears throat> and to build his church. And I think, after all, we should remember the words of our Lord who, following Peter's Holy Spirit-inspired declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, that Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the scriptures teach us that rock is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. That's in Isaiah 28, 16. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And this is what we've been seeing, uh, the building of the church through the centuries, that the church belongs to Christ, and he is building it, and he uses the means of people sharing the gospel, people um, following his word, and we should be encouraged by that as Christians, and we should be encouraged and humbled um, as Christians in our day to be included in that work um, as God builds his church. Um, and it's a work that he continues to do and will continue, continue to do until the cr- time of Christ's return, and when Christ comes back for his church to take us home to be with him forever. <clears throat> and most recently, we've been looking at events in the the life of the church through what have been called the First and Second Great Awakenings. Um, Last week, Bubba pointed out the stark differences between those two events, differences that we should be aware of, if for nothing else, to see that one is built on a call to embrace the authority and truth of the scriptures, and the other was built on the shifting sand of emotionalism and personal experiences. And today we want to look at Um, one of the other benefits or outworkings of the Protestant Reformation and the preaching of the word by uh, the men involved in that first great awakening. It's not something new to Christianity and the life of of the church, but something that perhaps had been lost along the way in terms of the church being about the business of God, just like the scriptures were lost for a time uh, and had to be recovered. And I think this is another aspect of that. Uh, but if you want to turn with me to Matthew 28, 18, looking at a familiar passage of Scripture. <clears throat> yes, very familiar passage of Scripture, and this is familiar for many reasons, and it's encouraging for many reasons. Um, and I want to look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as it applies to what we're talking about today. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we've, we commonly call this the Great Commission. And in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, there seems to have been quite a resurgence in the church's desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think, of course, that follows the Reformation, that follows the recovery of the Word of God as people have it in their own hands. People see, uh, as their own lives are transformed, they see the need for others' lives to be transformed as well. And, and that's what we'll look at today in, in some measure. Uh, and again, like the rest of what we've been going over, this is just an overview, not a, an exhaustive study. There are many dedicated, committed Christian missionaries we could talk about, um, but we'll take a brief look at just a few today. Um, also, I think it's important to know that um, just as we see in the, the New Testament, faithful Christians have an effect on the lives of the Christians who come after them, right? Those Christians who follow. Because we look back, we see their, their lives and their work. We read their materials and we see um, how God used them. The way we see Paul influencing Timothy and, and John influencing men like Polycarp and moving forward from there. This, there's this progression of Christians observing the lives of other Christians as they serve the Lord and being sort of spurred on by that. Um, and the goal is, the key is, Christians need to influence others. We need to influence others by the way that we walk in the light of the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not that we would influence others to look at our glory or praise us or something like that. And that's not what these people were about. Um, and, and the goal is, of course, being diligent in teaching the truth. And like the reformers, that's what these, these missionaries were, were dedicated to. And I think we'll see these connections, these kind of connections from early Christians to later Christians as we'll, we'll look today. And the first person I want to talk about would, be, would become known as the father of modern missions, um, though he bega began in England as a shoemaker. Um, and this is William Carey. He lived from 1761 to 1834. And though younger, he lived during the time of John and Charles Wesley, which we we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, and, at, and a time during that evangelical revival that was taking place in England. Um, and he, while working um, as a shoemaker, uh, he taught himself several languages, including uh, Greek and Hebrew. Um, he was married to his wife, Dorothy, in 1781. They had six children. Uh, however, only three of them would live to adulthood. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is uncommon for the time. Life was very difficult uh, for people back then. Um, his later missionary work would be influenced by at least two written sources. A, a pamphlet that a friend gave him in 1781 entitled, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. Okay, and, this, and this was all about how Christians, um, particularly Christians in England, should think about committing their lives to overseas mission work. Uh, this was, this was a, a theme of his. Um, in 1785, by, uh, here's the other of the two, in 1785, by reading the biography of the life of David Brainerd, and if you remember, we talked about him a few weeks ago. Uh, so he looked at that, that biography, uh, as he was a missionary to the Native American tribes in New England. And so these things were very influential in his life. And, and so we have in Carey um, influence from the great American preacher, Jonathan Edwards. Um, and Edwards, if you remember, we talked about, was the one that published this biography of um, David Brainerd. And that was like 40 years before this. Um, and this was very inspiring to him. Um, this reading um, of these things would serve to spur Carey's desire to see um, the gospel taken around the world to be brought to unreached people. And in 1789, Carey took, he took on the pastorate of a small church in Leicester, England, 
Now, I looked this up because it doesn't look like Lester, but the pronunciation I could find says Lester, even though it looks like something else. But anyway, I didn't want you to think I didn't look that one up. But Lester, England. Um, and he's part of what is called um, particular Baptists, um, also sometimes known as Reformed Baptists. And in 1792, he published a book that was very important regarding mission work. Um, now, someone, I think, should have talked to him about short titles um, because it was called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. That's a, that's a mouthful. Um, and he wrote that Christ's Great Commission that we just read a few minutes ago, he wrote that that was for all believers, which to us shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't really sound surprising, but apparently it was. It was. Um, in other words, there's a global need for the gospel to be preached, and this was not only the work of pastors. Right? This is for all believers. This is work that every Christian should be involved in and engaged in. It doesn't mean that every Christian should be heading off to the foreign mission field, right? But the Great Commission isn't just for going over to other countries. Uh, we have many lost people in our own country as well. And included in that book was a brief history of uh, mission work from the early church all the way to John Wesley. And he had a lot of pages in that book dedicated to statistics. He looked, he did study, and he looked at world religions. He looked at population zones, um, uh, he looked to see around the world where was the need and how big was the need. Um, and it's around that same time that William Carey helped found what was known as the Baptist Missionary Society. And that wasn't the original name, though. Okay, he, he must have come up with uh, uh, that, the original name. I, personally, it seems to me he probably came up with that original name personally because it was about as long as his book title. Um, they first called it, now remember, this is an organization. This is a missionary society, right? They first called it the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. How'd you like to put out that on a business card? Say, here's where I work. Uh, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. So, uh, but it became the Baptist Missionary Society, and it actually still exists today. And um, I believe it's called the BMS World Mission today. And by 1793, Carey was on his way to India, um, where he initially managed an indigo factory. Does anybody know what indigo is? Now, don't say a color, but dye? Where does it come from? Yeah, plant, right. I didn't know I had to look all this up. I'm like, I thought indigo was a color. I should ask Rosie, yeah. So he managed to plant um, a factory uh, an indigo factory, and so that he could spend time in translating the Bible into Bengali. Um, and we should notice not only the importance that he put on missionaries learning languages, learning the languages of the people, but more importantly, getting the word of God to them in their language. Um, and that's a sort of a pattern in a lot of these early missionaries is and again, that's why I say we see that connection to the Reformation, this recovery of the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God and the people having the Word of God, including in their own languages. So many, many missionaries do still today, and we support missionaries who are involved in Bible translation. Uh, it's very important to get the Word of God into the language of the people. Um, so he had a, a great emphasis on that. Um, in 1801, he became a professor of Bengali at the College of Fort William in Calcutta. And there he would not only uh, spend time revising his Bengali New Testament, but would also start to translate into the Sanskrit, Sanskrit language. And he translated the Bible into several other languages, actually. They would establish a printing press just um, to, to make copies, to distribute um, you know, his, his translations um, to the people. And in a major fire in 1812, um, a lot of the work that they had done was lost, but the press itself was not lost, and they were, within six months, back, back up and running and printing things. Um, this printing press, by the time of his death, 
that printing press and the work that he was doing with others would be responsible for getting uh, biblical materials into the hands of a lot of people in dozens of languages and dialects. Um, so that was very important work um, to get that information to the people in their language. In 1818, the, the mission established a school specifically to train pastors, um, offering training to people without considering where they fit into the caste system. Okay, and that's, that's some, there's something to be said for that. That's, that's not normal. Um, and so, but again, we see a specific effort to um, train people in the Word of God, to train people to go and be pastors. Um, and we still see many Christian organizations doing that today, having an emphasis not just on sending missionaries, which is important, but even in those foreign countries, training, in particular training local pastors, local people that grew up there and know the language, training them to be pastors in their own communities. Um, so this is, this is important work. Uh, William Carey died on June 9th, 1834, after spending his life in mission work, uh, in serving the Lord, spreading the gospel. He was involved in not only preaching, but translating and printing the Word of God and getting it to the people. Um, uh, and again, he had been influenced by Jonathan Edwards, who we talked about a few weeks ago, um, who was influenced by David Brainerd who was influenced by a Puritan from the 17th century named John Eliot, um, who himself had translated the Bible into the language of Native Americans as far back as the late 1600s. So just like Carey was influenced, he too would influence others. He influenced another British preacher named Charles Simeon, who would go on to devote his life to what I was just talking about, to training men in Bible exposition to be preachers, to rightly handle the Word of God. Um, and just a couple months ago, I was down in Southern California. I attended a workshop there put on by what's known as the Charles Simeon Trust. And it's a, a workshop specifically for that purpose, for training men in Bible exposition. Um, and so that work still is still continuing from, from so long ago. Um, Henry Martin heard Charles Simeon preaching and talking about the work of William Carey, uh, what he had done in India, and this caused Martin to have a desire to do the same work. He would later write memoirs um, that w of his own, his own missionary work that would influence other English folks. Um, Anthony Norris Groves would become a missionary to, to modern-day Iraq and later to India as well. And Groves wrote about the influence that Martin had on him. And he said once, um, I have today finished reading for the second time Martin's memoir. How, should, how my soul admires and loves his zeal, self-denial and devotion. How brilliant, how transient his career. What spiritual and mental power amidst bodily weakness and disease. Oh, may I be encouraged by his example to press on to a higher mark. How many of you have been influenced by other Christians in your life? Yeah. I mean, if, if nothing else, whoever shared the gospel with you and you came to faith in Christ. But there are people that you have read about, people that you've learned about that have had influence on your life and you've been sort of spurred on to do things in service uh, of the Lord because of someone else's life. And there's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to worship the people. We don't want to put them on a pedestal. Um, but... To, to even, even Paul called on people to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Um, so this, is, this should be nothing new to us. Bubba, do you have anything you wanted to add? Couldn't tell if you were chomping at the bit or not. Okay. Uh, and all this, this influence in, um, in, in all these other people from the work of William Carey. Um, and Carey also influenced the next Christian missionary that I want to talk about this morning. And that would be a man named Doneram Judson. And his, um, this time he was an American. Okay? First, Carey is from England. Judson's from America. However, he's influenced 
by Carey's work. Judson was born in Massachusetts in 1788. Um, just 12 years after the United States gained its independence. He, he grew up in a Christian home, and I think this is a story of a lot of people, maybe people you know, maybe even you yourself, growing up in a Christian home with a, with a dad as a pastor, but at some point walks away from the Lord, doesn't, doesn't want anything to do with the Lord, and, and leaves everything that he was raised um, to believe and follow. Uh, and this is the result, at least in part, by the influence from a friend named Jacob Eames, who told him that he should abandon Christianity. He should, he should leave all the Christian teachings and become a deist, right? uh, someone who looks to human reason to determine truth. Um, yeah, go ahead. So the, the conversation that they're having between Eames and Judson, we'll talk about not specifically them tom- uh, next week, but we'll be talking about the the things going on in the church that are leading to people abandoning Christ and adopting a broader view of, of religion like deism. And we'll be talking about the strains that are going on in that regard. We'll be amplifying that next week. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as we talk about influence, of course, influence can go the other way, right? As, and that's the Bible warns about that constantly, right? When, we, when it talks about false teachers and false teaching. Um, we should not, as Christians, be influenced the other way. We should be influenced and in following those who follow Christ. Um, so he would have to tell his parents, of course, that he um, had abandoned Christianity, and he did so on his 20th birthday in 1808. And then he decided he was going to go to New York, and he's going to be a playwright. And somewhere along the way, uh, I don't know how long after that, but the story is told that he was staying while traveling. He stopped and he's staying in a small town inn one night. Um, he couldn't sleep um, because he heard the sounds of someone dying in the room next to him. And the thought of death haunted him and he couldn't sleep. And all night he's tossing and turning, pondering his own eternal state. Um, and the next morning he's leaving and he finds out that the man in the next room indeed did die. Um, but even more shocking than that was the fact that he found out that man was his friend, Jacob Eames, uh, that same friend who told him to abandon Christianity and become a deist, and now that man is dead. And so, of course, the Lord is using this in his life. He's using this encounter to bring him back to, to him. And so God works through this. God changes his heart. And he's, he is truly saved. He would finish seminary four years later in 1812. Um, and that same year, he would marry his wife, Anne. They would leave two weeks after their marriage for India on February 5th, 1812. And he's one of the first missionaries from North America to go overseas um, to the foreign mission field. But interestingly, uh, several months before they got married, Judson wrote a letter to the man who would be his future father-in-law uh, to tell him what his plans were and what kind of sacrifice it would entail, not only for him, but for his daughter if she married him. And so I included in here part of what he said in that letter. <clears throat> Very interesting. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Wow. You know, not, not the wisest way to ask a guy if you can marry his daughter, I think, but... Uh, 
sincere nonetheless, committed nonetheless. If you, if I ask a question, what does such a line of questioning and statements portray about the theology of this man? What would you say? What was that? All or nothing? Okay. What do you think? Uh, hearing those words, what does that tell you about what he thinks of God? Okay, he, he's going in with open eyes, right? He's not fooled. He's not thinking this is going to be a vacation. What else we learn about his view about God? It's worth the sacrifice, okay? Any other thoughts? Yeah. You can see in there all of those things. You can see in there that he... He views God as sovereign over all things, that he knew Christ truly saves, not only himself, right, but, but he wants the gospel to go out so that Christ can save others. He knew, you can see in there, he knows that this earth is not his home, right, that he has eternity with Christ to look forward to. Um, he knew that God's glory was worth any amount of suffering that he might have on the earth. Uh, yes? Yeah, I, w- I, would, I would think so, that she knew all this. She was on board with all this. Um, and apparently, Dad consented because right, they went. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know that I would recommend that way of writing to your future father-in-law. Honesty is the best policy, okay? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but they did get married. They did leave for India. Um, but they had problems. They had a lot of problems along the way. Uh, things didn't work out for them getting to India. They lost financial backing. Um, uh, they had trouble with their visas, couldn't get into India. They were forced to settle in Burma uh, instead. And so now they have language barriers that they weren't prepared for. They, they spent years studying and learning the language there. When they did learn the language and began to share the gospel, um, the gospel wasn't well received, and, and perhaps in part because um, there at that time, it was a, a death penalty to switch religions. Right? So, again, unless it was a true conversion, nobody's just going to volunteer. You're not going to see a lot of false conversions uh, in a climate like that. Um, but after 12 years... Uh, and, and I would think many of us would consider this a hardship. After 12 years of all this hard work, and, and the only fruit they saw were 18 convergen- conversions to Christianity. Um, and some might say that's failure. Um, I, I wouldn't believe that that's failure. Uh, he, they might even been tempted to look at that as failure. Uh, we, we tend to give up pretty easily these days. I don't know, these people seemed, back then, seemed a lot more stout or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but like today, a lot of foreign missionaries face these kinds of things. They face threats from governments. Um, they, they face sickness uh, and disease. That, those were a constant back then. They still are now, though we have better medical care these days. Um, and, and, and perhaps can, those things can be not as detrimental sometimes. Um, but at one point during the Civil War in Burma, he's put in a death prison. Right? He's, he's tortured. He, he nearly dies there after uh, all his time there and after a forced death march. Um, and he was there for about 17 months in those harsh, harsh conditions. And his wife worked very hard to get him released. Um, and she died only a few months after he's released from, from prison. Uh, and this is only 14 years after he wrote that letter to her dad. Um, and from 1812 to 1850, he had tremendous loss he, and hardship. He lost two dozen either relatives or close friends um, to death, including his first and second wives. Several of his children um, would die 
in the face of all this hardship and loss, though, he, he continues his work. He continues the work of uh, translating the Bible into the Burmese language. And by the time he died in 1850, there were a hundred churches. There were 8,000 Burmese people who professed faith in Christ. Um, you know, that's a big difference from 18. Um, we can see God's faithfulness there. And in 1993, the head of the Myanmar Evangelical Fellowship made a statement saying, today there are six million Christians in Myanmar. And he says, every one of us trace our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adoranam Judson. So, and that's only, what, 150 years later. Um, this is what is the result of this work. And so I, I think, you know, that's something we can be encouraged by, too, that sometimes we're, you know, we can be faithful to what God says and we can share the gospel. Maybe we won't see fruit, but that's, that's okay. Um, God does what he's going to do when he's going to do it. It doesn't mean he's not using you to, to impact people's lives with the truth of the gospel. Um, so now to look at another of these important Christians who came before us, um, we have to go back to a name I mentioned earlier, Anthony Norris Groves. And Groves was influenced by Henry Martin, like I said, and I read a quote from Groves about his reading of Martin's memoirs. But Groves also influenced two guys in particular, George Mueller, who lived from 1805 to 1898, and James Hudson Taylor, 1832 to 1905. And, and Hudson Taylor was the first modern missionary to reach the interior of China, and he established the China Inland Mission. At one point during his work there, he would return to England, um, sort of on a recruiting mission, um, and he tried in particular to encourage young Christians to enter missionary work, to come in particular to China. And there was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So one of the pivotal things about Taylor that really, he, he changed the mentality of how missions operated. You'll notice the name of his organization was the China Inland Mission. And what he, what he did, prior to Taylor, most of the missionary organizations were going to the cities in these foreign parts of the world, and they were working within the more cosmopolitan urban environment where there was more contact between European Christians and the native population. So there was a more, more of a mix. And Taylor uh, got it in his mind that they needed to push beyond those coastal regions and go into the more interior, more uh, un, uh, unaffected interior parts of these countries. So, you know, where missionaries were just even the colonial powers had not penetrated culturally. And so he went up the rivers in China and he focused his missionary work on these uncontacted groups. And because these groups hadn't had as much uh, cultural contact with Europeans, he made it a point to start dressing in local dress and speaking the local languages primarily. And so he shifted the, import the, the emphasis on missions Oh, not just geographically, but the approach to it in terms of adopting local customs in order to meet people where they're at rather than kind of more of a cross-cultural, you know, like melding of the cultures in the more cosmopolitan parts of these countries. So he, he really did shift the paradigm in how missions were done. And he also shifted the paradigm in terms of recruiting missionaries because, it, you know, as Hoyt said, he encouraged young Christians to come. When, it's a, when, when we're talking about young Christians, he's talking about not just married people, but single people, and not just single people, but also single women. So he, he really shifted the paradigm in terms of who was going to go out into the world to share the gospel. So, anyway. Yeah, and that's, a lot of people picked up that, too, in terms of missions, that, um, you know, adopting the local dress and customs, you know, not, we're not going on missions, at least we shouldn't be, just speaking about Americans right now, we shouldn't be going on missions, foreign missions, to make people American Christians, right? We're, we're sharing the gospel with them where they're at. It's, as long as they are not, you know, going against the word of God, they can dress how they want. They can worship how they want. 
as long as it fits with what God describes as biblical worship. Yeah. And, and that's not the fault of the missionaries that came before Taylor. I mean, they planted the foothold of the gospel in these countries that then allowed Taylor and his, his followers to push deeper in. So it's, it's not an indictment on those who came before. He's just <coughs> building on what they've done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very important that these missionaries were not, you know, weekend warriors, right? They're, they're dedicating their lives to these people and, and are living with them. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. So, um, in talking about his recruitment of young people. When he went back to England, at least um, um, one time, uh, there was a famous cricket player at Cambridge named C.T. Studd who heard Hudson Taylor preaching and was so impacted by that that he also would leave his life of what could have been extreme. He was already famous, but could have been extremely full of fame and comfort uh, to go overseas for a life of service to Christ. So he, he left all that behind uh, from this, the impact of the preaching of, of this man. And uh, of course, you take a famous cricket player. I've never played cricket, but it's important to a lot of people, apparently. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the publicity, you know, that this would bring about would be enormous and uh, also influential in, in the lives of other people, influential on campuses, uh, that this person would be leaving all that behind to go and, and serve Christ. And so we would see the beginnings of the student volunteer movement for foreign missions. And, and that would start in, in North America as well in 1886. And that would be led by men like D.L. Moody, perhaps you've heard of, um, and others. Um, they would lead American young people to a life of foreign missions as well. Um, and so C.T. Studd, or Charles Thomas Studd, was born on December 2nd, 1860, in England. Um, by the time he was 16 years old, through the influence of D.L. Moody, he would trust Christ as his Savior. Um, by the time he left sports, left the fame of cricket, um, you know, he decided that a life of athletics was not what he wanted. And he said, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? And also he said, how, how could I spend the best years of my life in working for myself and the honors and pleasures of this world when thousands and thousands of souls are perishing every day? And these are the these are the sentiments of, I would say, probably the sentiments of all committed missionaries, foreign missionaries. They are so grieved by the thought of lost souls around the world without the gospel. They're willing to go and serve Christ in these ways and, um, and give up all the things that they might have in, in a place like the United States in particular. And this hasn't, I don't believe this has changed at all as we see we still see American missionaries and missionaries from other Western places going to far off places, places of hardship and suffering. Um, it's because of these kind of mindsets of these people. It seems like people don't talk like this anymore, don't write like this anymore at least. Um, but these, these I, I find these quotes and things that are very compelling um, and sometimes very convicting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're fooling ourselves if we think the United States doesn't need missionaries sent here, too, right? <laughs> we, we should be doing that here. Yeah. 
That's right. And some of what Bubba was mentioning earlier, you know, the unfortunately Christians are and can be influenced by ungodly things and just like during the Reformation, things things die out. Things lose, you know, interest, people lose interest. Um, and as they, as they move away from the truth of the Word of God into other things. And uh, C.T. Studd spent 10 years in China working uh, in particular in a rehabilitation center for people addicted to opium. And that, there he would share the gospel with people. He would see people come to faith in Christ uh, in that setting. He also, while he was there, married his wife Priscilla. Uh, they have four daughters. Um, he went back to England for a few years um, then they left for India, where he pastored a church for seven years. And after that, he went to the Belgian Congo in 1913. And while there, he had, of course, many difficulties, like all foreign missionaries do, including contracting a terrible case of malaria. Um, he and other missionaries would set up stations in the heart of Africa and preach the gospel to the different tribal people there. They had never heard the name of Christ. Um, and so Stud, like others we've looked at through the last few weeks, he was a hymn writer. He wrote over 200 hymns. Um, he also translated the New Testament into the native language. <clears throat> Africa is where C.T. Stud would die in 1931, the age of 70. And he spent most of his adult life in missionary service around the world. Ten years in China, seven years in India, and, and about 20 years in Africa. Um, and like many of the others, Stud showed a great resolve in his service for the Lord and his sacrificial living for the gospel. He would say of the taxing nature of the kind of missionary work he did, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Again, we can, you can probably look at quotes from these people, all these different people, all day long, and you'll see these similarities, right? It's not just that they want to go do a good thing. The, the impact is from their own salvation moving forward from there, and they, they see the need in the world for others to, to have the gospel as well. Um, so, again, the impact that faithful Christians have on other Christians uh, is something we should know is real. Um, we should know about it. There, like I said at the beginning, there are lots of people we could probably talk about. Um, and even these that we've mentioned, we could go into so much more depth uh, into their lives and the happenings of their missionary work and the, the hardships, and we could see their commitment to suffering for the, for the glory of God. Um, and, I, I mean, we mentioned Hudson Taylor earlier. Hudson Taylor had an impact on C.T. Studd, but that's not all. Taylor's testimony was influential in the lives of uh, missionaries <coughs> we might even be more familiar with, like Amy Carmichael. She was influenced by Taylor and would spend her life in India, uh, in particular saving abandoned children of temple prostitutes, right? mostly young girls, but at, at, at one point um, she started working with young boys as well, taking care of hundreds of them at a time. Um, and she would spend her life doing this. Even though she had great health difficulties herself, um, very debilitating health problems, um, and near the, we would say near the end of her life, but 20 years before she died, she had a severe injury, and she's pretty much bedridden the last 20 years of her life. I, I can't imagine. But she continues. She continues to minister to the kids. She continues to minister to people. She continues to write. Um, she lived to be 83, and she, and she would die in India in 1951. Um, Eric Little, uh, you've probably heard of him, portrayed in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Right? Uh, he's a missionary to China um, after winning gold in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. Um, he also was inspired by Hudson Taylor. He would serve in China until he died in an internment camp in 1945 during World War II. Elizabeth Howard, born in 1926 to missionary parents and attended Wheaton College, and she later wrote this, when I was a college student, my father lent me the two-volume life of Hudson Taylor. Another college student, Jim Elliott, read it too. She said, 
This was one of the great things he and I had in common, a huge hunger for the sort of godliness for a true missionary heart. Of course, you know that's not that Elizabeth Howard is Elizabeth Elliot, right? Married to Jim Elliot, who along with four other of his missionary friends trying to spread the gospel to the Aka tribe in Ecuador died in 1956. They're trying to bring the gospel and they're speared to death um, pretty early on as they try to bring the gospel into this tribe. And Elizabeth Elliot, she would go on to continue that work. Um, the Lord would provide for her to reach that same tribe with the gospel just two years later. Yeah. Through Gates of Splendor. Yeah. Yeah, there are, other, there are a lot of things written about Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot, others, and of course there's others involved in that. Um, right. 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 Yeah, I mean, and, and we look at those, we look at them as tragic events, and they are tragic events, but of course, the Lord is working in all that. The Lord is, is doing great things through that, and we can see the resolve of these, these faithful Christians um, to continue to take the gospel um, to these people, and she would go and live with that tribe for, for a time and, and share the gospel there. Um, she, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, died in 2015. Uh, not too long ago, the age of 88. Um, so you can see that the work that these and many, of course, many others would do in following Christ, um, really you have to see that it's based on their own salvation first. Uh, they, are, they are a transformed person. Um, and in that transformation, that being born again, they have a desire to share the gospel with others. And in particular, these people have a desire to take the gospel around the world. Um, we can see in their lives their, their commitment to the truth of the gospel and the necessity of following the Great Commission, as we read it um, when we began this morning, so that other lost souls can uh, be saved by the power of the gospel through the working of the Holy Spirit. And that the same things are necessary here that were necessary in the Reformation, right? The power and the authority of the Word of God in the lives of Christians, and the help of the Holy Spirit in spreading that to others. Um, I think we should always remember that these sorts of stories are not just stories from the past, but <clears throat> these are being written all the time. Um, as, as the church is being built by Christ around the world, these stories are written all the time. There's, there's constantly um, God's people suffering for his name around the world. And so um, it is important for us to pray for not only the missionaries we support and know about, but you can pray in general for the missionaries who are your brothers and sisters in Christ you don't even know around the world. Yeah. <coughs> That's right. And then, you know, 100 years from now, people will be looking back at our time period and seeing who were the people from our time period that were influenced by those people and what influence do they have on other Christians. And of course, the goal of none of these people is self-gratification, is, you know, that others would focus on them or anything like that. They want the gospel of Jesus Christ taken around the world, and they want people to come to faith in Christ. That's what's important. Um, and the Lord does bless that. And we shouldn't look at hardships and difficulties, 
even in our own lives, we're not foreign missionaries, but um, I, I would agree with Carrie as we talked earlier on that the Great Commission is not just for pastors, not just for official missionaries. It is for all of us. That um, should be a goal in all of our lives to to share the gospel with whoever we have influence over, whoever we have contact with. Yeah. The in a lot of ways, the great counterpart to the to the uh, Great Commission is Acts one eight, and Christ says before he is taken up into heaven that you know when we when the Spirit comes upon us that we will then go out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost points of the earth. And so you know not everybody is going to the outermost points of the earth, but you know Mount Shasta is our Jerusalem, and you know, Siskiyou County or California, that's our Judea and our Samaria. So, you know, we, some are called to go to the outermost points of the earth, but we are all called to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria. So, I mean, even here in Mount Shasta, we still have this miss, missionic uh, role to play to carry the gospel to those who, who do not embrace it. Right. So. Yeah, I, you know, I think often we... We look at hardships in our life, and what we're looking for is peace about something. Somebody I was listening to earlier this week was talking about that, how we, we make decisions if we have peace about it. <laughs> uh, and he was commenting that, since when do Christians only do things because they feel peaceful about it? Um, we, we read about this letter to a future father-in-law saying all the hardships that they're going to be in it. It's not a peaceful thing you're going into. And like you said, he goes in eyes wide open. But why is that? And I think, um, you know, we have to look at not only what Bubba was just talking about, but in the Great Commission at the end, um, in verse 20, Jesus, after telling them, uh, continuing to tell them about teaching the people to observe all that he has commanded you, and he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And, and the fact that Christ is with us doesn't mean Christ is with me, therefore everything is easy, but that he is with us. He, it's, it's him who strengthens us through his spirit. Yeah, we can't do this without him. And it doesn't mean peace and safety and health and all these other things. Um, but what it does mean is that however hard it is, it's okay. He is with us. And to have the mindset of these people, uh, even as you and I are not foreign missionaries, we can have that mindset in our own workplaces, in our own contacts with other people as we talk to them about the Lord, that you know, the most important thing is that we are secure in our salvation in Christ. We have eternal hope in Him. And so whatever someone else might say or do, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And Christ is with us to the end of the age. You had something else. Yeah, and, and none of these people would have said things were easy, things were great because the Lord was with me. No, they would say things were really hard, but the Lord was with me. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it, it is a life, it should be a life mindset for us. Again, not that every Christian is going to pack up and go overseas, but we have many, many lost people in our lives every day that we could be sharing the gospel with. Um, that's something that we should, be, we should be convicted by when we, see, when we read stories like this, when we see others um, living lives of sharing the gospel um, it should be convicting to us. And we should ask ourselves, why am I not doing it ever? <laughs> or why do I not do it enough? 
Okay. Right. Well, and, and we could you could be living a, a Christian life, living a good example for others, but just living a good example, <clears throat> they're not hearing the gospel. Um, you know, there are a lot of really nice people in the world that you could sort of imitate in how they treat people and, and stuff like that. And they might not be Christians at all. So people need to hear the truth along with that. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about Watchman Nee's ministry. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I am not familiar. Uh, I mean, of course I've heard of him, but um, I'm not familiar with his theology or anything like that. I was just talking to somebody about that not too long ago. I don't remember who it was. Good thing we don't have any anti-Christianity stuff here these days. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Our mm. Uh-huh. Right. It's amazing how we see Christ building his church and how people, uh, even in the face of those kind of grave threats like, like Christians face in China and other places around the world, uh, that doesn't stop the building of, of Christ's church. And the reason is because it's Christ who builds it. Not, not human hands, not human ideas. Uh, it's Christ who builds his church. And so it, it, hasn't, it hasn't ever stopped and it won't ever stop until Christ comes back. Uh, which is something we should all be encouraged by. We're out of time. What's that? Time's up, yeah. So we're going to close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day. We thank you, Lord, for um, Lord for salvation that has been brought to so many of us through faith in Christ. And um, Lord, we thank you that you are building your church. We are not the builders of your church. We are the tools, Lord, that you use to build your church. And I pray that we would be willing to be used by you however you see fit. I pray, Lord, that we would be reading your word, studying your word. We'd be committed to your word, to the truth, um, whether we're going overseas or whether it's in our own workplace locally or with our friends. Father, I pray you would give us uh, broken hearts over lost people. Um, not because we're better than them, Lord, or have discovered something that they haven't, but Lord, that, that you have first loved us. I pray that we can share that with, with others, Lord, that the offer of salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful in that, Lord. Help us to be encouraged by other Christians 
who came before us. We thank you for them and for their, their influence, for their commitment to you. Um, and Lord, may we be seen by future generations as having been faithful to you, to your word. And may you receive all the glory and praise and honor always because you alone are worthy. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.